This is Sean Lynn Jones. I'm the editor of Quarterly Journal International Security, which is based at the Belfer Center at the Harvard Kennedy School. Today I'm talking to uh, Peter Krauss, who's an assistant professor of political science at Boston College and a research affiliate in the Security Studies program over at MIT. I'm talking to Peter about an article he's recently published in the journal International Security. The article's called The Structure of Success how the internal distribution of power drives armed group behavior and national movement effectiveness. In the article, uh, Peter builds on work he's done on how insurgent organizations, armed groups, uh, and even terrorist movements uh, can be successful or, or not successful. Why are some of them effective and why are some of them not so effective? And uh, he tries to answer that question by looking at the internal distribution of power among the various groups that make up some of these movements. It's good to have you here today, Peter. Um, I wonder if you could say a little bit about how you got interested uh, in this topic. Sure, sure. Uh, thanks again for having me. Um, so in many ways, my background comes from Middle East politics, looking at international relations of the Middle East on the one hand, but then also uh, political violence on the other hand. And uh, it was pretty early in my graduate career. I was doing some exploratory fieldwork in the region, uh, doing interviews, etc. And one of the things that really struck out to me was that uh, the dominant view in the field of looking at insurgent movements and national movements was treating them as unitary, particularly when we're talking talking about effectiveness. And so I said, look, you know, looking at the internal distribution of power, looking at how these various groups interact, really is not just kind of part of the story. It might be the main story here. And so I wanted to push forward and investigate that and see what the impact of internal politics was on ultimate movement uh, outcomes. Now, when you, you talk about a, a movement or a, a national mu movement, could you explain more clearly uh, what you mean, what, what falls sure. under that heading? Sure. So something comes out a bit of sociology and political science as well. Um, a social movement in general is generally a collection of individuals and organizations uh, striving for some common goal, usually something political like ending discriminatory policies or pushing for lowering taxes. In the case of national movements, which are often seen as a subset of social movements, uh, the common goal they're pushing for is the establishment of a nation state. Uh, it's a group of people who consider themselves to be part of a single nation. They have a common heritage, a common language, common culture, and the idea is they therefore also have potentially a tie to a common piece of territory that they want to create as their new independent state. Okay, so in the Middle East, an obvious example would be uh, the PLO, Palestinian uh, National Movement. Uh, was um, Nelson Mandela's African National Congress also in this category? Uh, yeah, it's an interesting question. So I would say yes, uh, it is a national movement. Uh, the difference in some sense is that uh, for the PLO and the Palestinian National Movement, uh, they're struggling at various points, You know, even initially against the Ottoman Empire, then against the British uh, during the period of the Palestine Mandate, now today against the Israelis, uh, whereas the African National Movement under Mandela is struggling against you know, the apartheid regime, but nonetheless people who consider themselves to be South African. So um, in some ways, some people consider those to be different types of national movements, but uh, I still think there's a lot of similarities there. Now, the, uh, the central questions in your article are, um, you know, first, when and why do national movements succeed? And then uh, what explains the, the variations in the effectiveness of um, using political violence uh, by these national groups? Uh, in a nutshell, what's your answer? Sure. So um, my theory is based on an idea of groups trying to achieve two things simultaneously. 
on the one hand, they have this common objective of a strategic goal. Could be removing the current ruling regime, could be establishing a new state, uh, but they also have organizational goals. They want to increase their notoriety, their recruits, the money that they have, generally their organizational strength. And there's tension between these two. Um, I assume that groups always prioritize organizational strength first and foremost, so they're selfish a bit in that regard. Uh, but the issue is that depending on the distribution of power, uh, they can actually do things that are for the common good, but for somewhat selfish reasons. So let me explain what I mean by that. When you have power that's very concentrated in one group's hands, you have a hegemon, uh, that group actually has the incentive to pursue the common goal, and in this case, pursuing a new state, because of the fact that when that new state is captured, um, the group that's leading the movement, that's the strongest group in the movement, is likely to become the leading party or the leading um, faction in the new state. Therefore, it's likely to you know, control the presidency, control taxes, uh, gain status from being in office. And so it's going to have these kind of private goodies that it can capture. Therefore, when you have a hegemonic movement in which power is concentrated, you're more likely to see pursuit of the common goal and therefore more likely to see success. There's two other key mechanisms. One is the fact that when you have a hegemonic movement, you're less likely to see these counterproductive violent mechanisms like outbidding, chain ganging, infighting, basically where groups are using their scarce resources to fight one another and compete internally as opposed to trying to commonly pursue that strategic objective. Uh, when that happens, success is less likely. So when you have a fragmented movement or even a united movement, you're more likely to see these counterproductive mechanisms emerge. Whereas when you have a hegemonic movement, you're less likely to see them and therefore the movement is more likely to be successful. Finally, you have the fact that when you are a national movement or insurgency, you have to be able to credibly signal what your demands are, what you want, and also the fact that if a deal is reached between the state or the regime and your, and your movement, that you're going to credibly kind of deliver on your end of the bargain. When you have a hegemonic movement, it's pretty clear what the signals are in terms of what you want. There's a single group with which to negotiate. If a deal is reached, it's pretty likely that that group is going to be able to say, okay, well now stop violence or restrain it within the movement, it won't happen. Whereas if you have a fragmented movement, uh, it's more likely that you're going to have spoilers emerge, you're going to have the deal actually not being held up by the other, other side, and so therefore success of the movement is less likely to occur. Could you say a little bit more about what you mean by outbidding and, and, and chain ganging. Sure. How do those things happen and, and what are they anyway? Yeah, so these are this is a, a bit of jargon that we use in political science, but basically what they refer to is the fact that, say I launch an attack as an armed group, um, potentially to show my revolutionary bona fides, to show, look, I am not just talking about revolution, I'm not just talking about fighting the enemy, I am showing you by making a costly signal, a costly sacrifice of killing myself or killing others on the other side. Another group might look at that and say, hey, you know, we also uh, care a lot about the revolution, about the movement. Now we're we're going to launch two attacks to kind of show our common supporters that actually we're the group that's doing the most for the movement. Some other group then launches a third attack, or perhaps an attack against a more extreme target like a civilian. The point of this, this is a, a version of outbidding, is that the, ultimately what's driving it is not so much what strategically makes sense to defeat the enemy. It's about showing c internally who is the more revolutionary group and who's going to get more support. Now, that's still helpful for the group in terms of its survival or in terms of its strength, but it's not necessarily the best strategy for the broad movement. And so sometimes these types of dynamics, chain gang being a version of that, where actually drawing the rest of the movement into a war for which the movement is not prepared, can actually be strategically counterproductive. So in a nutshell, when you have this rivalry between groups within a movement and they're struggling for influence, it's one-upmanship. Yeah, you know, who can launch the most atrocious attack or the, be the most aggressive and show that they are truly committed to the cause, and that drives others to follow and can lead to a very violent uh, outcome, as well as a lot of competition between the groups. Absolutely. Um, now, 
to me, it, it seems fairly plausible that uh, a movement's going to be more successful when it has one group that's basically dominant or hegemonic uh, than a, a lot of groups that are fighting one another as well as fighting against their common adversary. Who could disagree with you? Uh, do other scholars reach a different conclusion about what kind of internal constellation of power is most likely to lead to success? Yes, honestly, most people do one way or another. Um, there's two dominant debates in the field that uh, my article bears on. The first looks at people who argue about whether insurgency and terrorism kind of quote-unquote work or don't work. So this is people like Jay Lyle or Max Abrams uh, basically arguing that, look, either insurgency is effective or ineffective because of states' counterinsurgency strategies or because of the target selection of individual groups. Um, the issue from my perspective is that they'll treat kind of the coercive as unitary. Either they'll look at the Malayan insurgency or the Algerian insurgency and not disaggregate it into its constituent groups that are both competing with one another as well as the state, or they'll look at individual groups that use terrorism and insurgency and look at their strategic success or failure, but not, again, in relation to other groups within their movement. Uh, so again, these are individuals who would disagree with me in the sense that they don't disaggregate this stuff, they don't look at organizational effectiveness and pursuit, and so in that sense would look at other variables for when and why movements would be successful or unsuccessful. The second debate does disaggregate movements and insurgencies. Uh, this is people like Kathleen Cunningham, Lee Seymour, Kristen Bakke, Wendy Perlman. They do great work on basically united versus fragmented movements and why one or the other is more effective and more successful. The issue that I have is that when they look at whether movements are united or fragmented, they break them up based on the numbers of groups uh, within the movement and whether they're allied or not. But they don't capture the relative power of these organizations. And I think that that's really important. If we look at the international system and we say, hey, what are the most important states in the system? We don't look at, you know, Luxembourg or kind of smaller states. We look at the United States and China and say, look, these are the states that kind of drive the key dynamics of trade, of conflict, etc. in the international system. Um, national movements, I would argue, are similar. And sense that if we're looking at the Palestinians, if we're looking at the Algerians, uh, we want to look at the most significant factions, the ones that have the largest memberships, the most wealth. They're the ones that are really driving the strategy of the movement, whether it's using violence, whether it's not, whether it's cutting a deal, whether it's not. Um, so in that sense, I think you do have to capture the distribution of power, both in terms of explaining when and why groups use or restrain violence, as well as whether the movement is effective or not. Um, these scholars would disaggregate movements, but they don't capture relative power over time. That's something that I do. So so again, there would be a disagreement there, and people have not previously talked about hegemonic movements and how they're potentially different than united movements. They're often treated as the same. So those would be kind of the two main areas uh, of scholars that would disagree with me, even though I like and agree with parts of each of them. Um, in terms of the first debate, I agree about the importance of credibility and signaling. In terms of the second debate, I agree about disaggregating movements. I would just say this key variable about distribution of power has been overlooked by both camps. I think that's a, a clear point. I'd have to say it wasn't obvious to me at first when I read the article that there was a difference between united and uh, hegemonic, okay. or one group really having preponderant power. But then I thought, you know, your, your real distinction is between groups that are together, and that there's an alliance and they're working together, groups that are in a movement that's falling apart because they're fighting one another, and a movement in where there's in which there's one dominant group as opposed to multiple groups that have you know, worked together but are still separate and have you know, more or less equal power. At least there's no one group that stands out. Now, it, it does seem to me that um, you know, it's probably, if you're, you're right, and he having hegemonic power within a movement is the key to success, 
then why don't movements just recognize this and organize their internal power uh, accordingly and thereby have what you call the structure of success? That's a great question. Um, yeah, and to borrow a bit from John Mearsheimer, I'd say this is kind of the tragedy of national movements to a degree because often they do recognize this. Uh, in fact, if you go through, as I have interviewing and looking at the archival materials for you know, internal group documents from the Palestinians to the Algerians to the Zionists and you know, onward, uh, they'll constantly talk about how internal fragmentation is killing the movement. It's hurting them. It's making them ineffective. What they need to do is come together under a single leader. The problem is everybody wants to be the head. So everyone recognizes that, yes, if we had a single dominant group, we would do better. The problem is they want to be it. So in the early Palestinian national movement, the PLO said, yes, we are going to be the umbrella organization under which everyone will function. Fatah said, no, actually, that's a good idea, except why don't we do it under our umbrella? Arab nationalist movement, same thing. And so at the end of the day, even though groups recognize this is the way to go, getting there requires that at least one of them kind of kills themselves in the sense of no longer survives as an autonomous organization. And that's a difficult choice for these groups to make. Your um, article, and, and your work in general, looks a lot at violence and groups that use violence. And um, in, in general, do you think violence is uh, effective or ineffective? Because it almost seems sometimes in your article that you're saying that uh, when you have one group in a dominant power position within a movement, you get less violence. Um, but whether you like it or not, sometimes violence does lead to a successful outcome. And uh, for a lot of countries or a lot of movements have been fighting for uh, independence from a colonial power, including the United States, for example. Uh, violence was a key component of the, the whole struggle. Uh, you know, how do you feel? Uh, are you, you trying to use violence effectively, or are you hoping that there'll be peaceful movements that achieve success? Yeah, so I think overall we can't blank make a blanket statement that violence is effective or ineffective. I think that uh, it is effective under some cases. Look, in the Algerian national movement, uh, they won amidst a very violent and brutal civil war, whereas in the Palestinian case, some of their greatest gains were gained after the first intifada, which was relatively uh, a nonviolent uh, period of the movement when there was a lot of civil resistance and grassroots, uh, grassroots movement. So what I would say overall is the conditions under which violence are, is more or less likely to be effective are a few. The one that I identify in this article has to do with the distribution of power and the fact that, you know, really a lot of it is trying to avoid counterproductive violence. Violence in this case that's driven not by the external goal, the common goal that all, they all, all these groups share, but rather violence that's driven by internal competition. So in that sense, if we're talking about effectiveness on the strategic level or the common objective, then that would be ineffective violence. Now, as I've written about in a previous article, um, we can you know, measure and uh, code effectiveness quite differently. So you might think of effective violence not about achieving the common objective, but rather about increasing the strength of an individual organization. In that case, it depends on whether certain types of violence are actually going to be popular with the base, um, whether you're striking against targets that are seen in some ways in a negative light, and that varies across movements. In some movements, hitting military targets or even civilian targets is actually seen as a good idea, at least by parts of a civilian base, whereas in others, uh, that's a no-no in doing so actually drive down your support. You've mentioned um, the Palestinian case and uh, the Algerian case. And in your article, you look at both of those in considerable depth. And I know you did a lot of research uh, in the Middle East and um, talked to some of the participants in um, these uh, national movements. Um, when it comes to the Palestinian case, could you say a little bit more uh, about how their efforts, uh, unsuccessful so far, to establish a, a state or at least uh, win significant territorial autonomy. How does that support your theory?
so the Palestinian national movement originates in the 20th century. Um, in this article, due to space constraints, I focus on four campaigns from 1964 up to 2000. Uh, these four campaigns offer intriguing variation both in the internal distribution of power uh, as well as in the actions and effectiveness of the movement. Um, for me, the curtain goes up in 1964. Um, you have three or four uh, significant groups within the Palestinian national movement at this time. You have the PLO, the Palestine Liberation Organization. You have Fatah. You have the ANM, the Arab Nationalist Movement. Um, each of these groups share a common goal of the, having a state of Palestine, uh, but they also differ on who actually should be leading the movement and ultimately ruling the new state. So what's interesting and what goes in line with my theory is that you have the challenging group, a group like Fatah, who initiates escalatory violence in January of 1965. Uh, Fatah does this not so much because it thinks this is strategically the best way to go, but because they recognize that the PLO is becoming quite strong. They're sponsored by these other Arab states. And so Fatah wants to do something to kind of change the game, shake things up, get public support, etc. So Fatah initiates violence at this time. Uh, what's interesting is that the ANM and PLO initially try to restrain it. They say, actually, this is a terrible idea. This is going to bring Nasser and chain gang Nasser into a war for which he's not prepared. And yet, within the next couple of years, when the ANM and PLO see that, this initial use of violence gets Fatah some popular support and some more recruits. They start using violence themselves, even though what they said previously was correct. Strategically, this wasn't the best idea. And in fact, these initial strikes against the Israelis help to raise the temperature between Israel and the Arab states. It helps to precipitate the Six-Day War in 1967, which is a disaster for the Palestinians. Leads to hundreds of thousands of more refugees, leads to the loss of the West Bank and Gaza that the Israelis capture in addition to the Golan Heights and the Sinai Peninsula. And so ultimately, this is a strategic failure drawn from the fragmentation of the movement, but it was driven by organizational goals with, again, kind of the weaker challenging groups like Fatah initiating violence, the PLO and A&M initially restraining, and then ultimately getting on board. What's interesting is that the 67 war changes so many things. It changes the fact that the Arab nationalist movement at writ large with Gamal Abdel Nasser and others kind of loses a lot of prestige. The Israelis basically triple their territory. It creates all these Palestinian refugees, etc., etc. And yet, the distribution of power inside the movement stays pretty much the same. The PLO is still the strongest faction. Fatah is still one of the weaker, significant groups. And my theory would predict, despite all this other stuff changing, we would see the same dynamics emerging. And that's actually exactly what you see. Even though there's an agreement between Fatah, the ANM, and PLO to not use violence um, shortly after the 1967 war. Fatah initiates an insurgency in the West Bank, trying to get a popular uprising there. Again, the ANM and PLO try to restrain it. Again, it leads to strategic failure. The Israelis basically roll up all these networks in the West Bank. What's interesting is that by 1969-1970, do we do see a shift in terms of the distribution of power in the movement. Fatah has now become the leader in the movement. Um, not the hegemon, but the leader. Whereas the ANM's descendant group, the PFLP, is a weaker group, but still a significant faction that's vying for power. What's so interesting is that the PFLP and you know the ANM as kind of its uh, previous group is now the one that's escalating violence. They're the ones who take hostages in Jordan. They're the ones who initiate airplane hijacking, again, for similar reasons, trying to shake up the game, trying to get more notoriety, more public support, drive up recruits and funding. And what's so interesting is that Fatah, previously the group that was escalating violence in 1965 and 67, is now playing the role of the leader trying to restrain these attacks. So they actually try to get the PFLP to return the hostages. The 
the PFLP launches a multi-airline hijacking from which Fatah says, you should return the planes. PFLP blows up the planes. Fatah negotiates a ceasefire with the King, King Hussein of Jordan. PFLP rejects the ceasefire. So again, even though these groups have the same leadership, same ideologies they had before, they're now changing roles in terms of using or restraining escalatory violence because of their position of power. Nonetheless, it's a fragmented movement still in 1970. It leads to strategic failure. Black September, when King Hussein of Jordan cracks down on the Palestinians, basically expels them. Again, another failure, but the groups are changing the roles that they're playing. Fast forward up into the mid-1980s, Fatah becomes the hegemon of the movement. Um, through the fact that it's able to defeat splinter groups from its from its faction, as well as the fact that PFLP and some of these other organizations are significantly weakened in the, the civil war in Lebanon, uh, Fatah becomes the dominant group. And so when the first Intifada emerges, something that Fatah does not initiate, but soon after is able to control, um, it is able to become basically the most successful period for the Palestinian national movement, in part because um, they're able to create a common strategy in terms of boycotts, strikes, etc. Uh, they're able to tamp down an internal competitive violence. You don't see, you know, competitive outbidding over, you know, suicide bombings or these types of things like you see in the Second Intifada, in part because there's only one dominant group, Fatah. And so from that, you get the Oslo Accords. Now, to be clear, Oslo is quite controversial. Many people to this day say, you know, didn't get the Palestinians that much. We still don't see a state of Palestine. And that's absolutely true. But compared to how the Palestinian National Movement was doing up to Oslo and thereafter, um, there were more concessions there in terms of autonomy over certain parts of the West Bank and Gaza, in terms of being able to bring back some uh, Palestinian refugees to the area. And so ultimately, it is a greater success than they had up until that point. And I would argue it's because of the hegemony of the Palestinian national movement. Okay. I can see the argument that the, um, the Palestinians uh, achieved the, the best outcomes that they've achieved so far when there was uh, a hegemonic group, uh, Fatah, basically uh, you know, dominating the, the PLO. But it hasn't been easy for the Palestinians. And, you, know, you can look at them from the outside and whatever you think of their cause or their methods and say this is a movement that has had a hard time getting its act together. They always seem to be uh, internally divided one way or another. And I, I wonder why uh, the Palestinians have had such a hard time achieving and maintaining a hegemony or a group that has hegemonic power within their national movement? Yeah, no, that's a great question. Um, and I don't look at that too in depth in the article. Uh, the extent that I do, I try to show that it's not an endogenous argument. What is meant by that is that it's actually the internal distribution of power that's driving success. It's not the other way around. Success is not driving the internal distribution of power in the movement. Now, that being said, I do think there are some arguments for why the Palestinians have seemed to have been quite prone to uh, dis uh, fragmentation. I think one is just the physical distribution of the people. Uh, from the course of wars, etc., you have millions of refugees scattered about countries like Syria and Jordan. Uh, even today, in terms of the territories that the Palestinians predominate in, Gaza and the West Bank, these are physically disconnected. And when that happens, that naturally creates centers of power that are disconnected and makes it more likely you're going to have at least one significant group in one area and another in another. And in fact, that's what we see today. We see Hamas controlling Gaza, Fatah and the Palestinian Authority controlling the West Bank. And unfortunately, I think that that's one of the things that's held the uh, Palestinian National Movement back in terms of progress today. Well, it's easy to see how these internal divisions have uh, prevented the Palestinians from achieving statehood. But when you step back and look at it from a broader perspective, it, it seems as though there's another pretty strong explanation for why the, the Palestinians have not established their own state. Uh, they've been battling against Israel which is a fairly wealthy state. 
It has a strong army and a fairly good track record of military effectiveness, a very high degree of motivation to protect its territory and not to create a Palestinian state that would threaten it, a uh, deeply held belief uh, that it has a very strong moral or religious claim to that territory. And uh, last but not least, it's had the United States on its side. Uh, the United States either has been one of the leading superpowers in the world during Israel's existence, or uh, as some people see it, maybe the most powerful state in the, the history of international politics. Mm -hmm. So uh, basically, you know, the deck's been stacked against the Palestinians. What difference has it really made that they've had these internal divisions? Yeah, no, I think that you're right that the deck has been stacked, uh, but I'll say a couple of things. First is, just in terms of the theory itself, uh, I think it's quite a parsimonious theory in the sense that it's only looking at the single variable of distribution of power, whereas you mentioned about six or seven different variables there. So to some degree, I recognize this single variable is not going to explain all variation in why groups are succeeding and failing. In fact, in the article I talk about, look, both the Algerian movement and the Palestinian national movement were both hegemonic at a certain point, and yet the Algerian movement was more successful. So why is that? And some of it points to the factors you're talking about. The state that they're going against, foreign uh, intervention or support, those all make a difference. But I will say a couple of things. First is, a lot of those factors you're pointing to are constant over time. The Palestinian national movement, at least for a period of decades, is fighting an Israeli state that's wealthy, that has a strong army, etc. And yet you do see variation in their success and failure. So that's not all there is to the story. Secondly, even the United States, which you might say, well, that's the one variable that seems to change because the U.S. isn't really a strong supporter of the Israelis until the second part of the 20th century. Previously, you can make the argument that the Israelis or the Zionist movement had the support of the British, who were another, you know, if not the regional power, the regional hegemon uh, that was supporting the Zionist movement. So in that sense, even though you have those factors being quite constant, you do see variation in Palestinian success and failure over time. The final thing I'll point out is simply that if you look at the other side of the coin in the Zionist movement, the Zionist movement is not just successful because it's wealthier, it has foreign support, it also had some of these same dilemmas in terms of internal fragmentation. There wasn't just the Haganah, which was kind of the pre-state militia that becomes the foundation for the IDF, there was also the Etzel and the Lehi, some of these smaller armed groups uh, that actually had quite a difference of opinion in terms of how to deal with the British, how to deal with the Palestinians, and yet one of the reasons that I argue that the Zionist movement was able to be more effective is the fact that it was generally a hegemonic movement. The and the labor Zionists really dominated within the movement, even though there were challenges from the right and the revisionist Zionists and the Etzel, it was never something where they were about to take over the leadership of the movement. Because of that, there was less internal violence and infighting, and ultimately they were able to be more successful when they came head-to-head -head with this other movement that had the same claim to territory in the region, the Palestinians. So, in short, the, the Palestinians may not have had great success, but relatively speaking, they've done better when they've had one group in a dominant position within the movement. Right. Um, you mentioned uh, how Israel and its uh, national movement had some problems, but generally was more effective. That makes me wonder, uh, to what extent are the divisions of the Palestinians, um, divisions that have been fostered and promoted by the Israelis and uh, Israeli intelligence, yeah, sure. So this is, uh, you know, the most classic story told on that front is Hamas. So, you know, Hamas, uh, actually like Fatah to some degree, emerged out of Gaza. And um, during the time of the emergence of Hamas, during the first intifada, the late 1980s, um, Hamas was not really on the Israelis' radar screen as a major threat. In fact, the major threat to the Israelis at the time was Fatah and the PLO. And so there was some thinking if the Israelis didn't, uh, you know, kind of try to inspire Hamas, at the very least they didn't repress them in the same way that they were repressing Fatah and the PLO. The idea being that, hey, you 
you know, as from the Israeli perspective, we recognize that fragmentation can potentially weaken the movement. Having an internal rival for Fatah is something that the Israelis had tried to produce multiple times, not just in terms of Hamas, but also in terms of local leaderships in the West Bank. And so in that sense, I think there is uh, some truth to the tale. Now, to be clear, though, the Israelis often also talk about trying to prevent violence. And, you know, one of the arguments that my article makes is actually if you want to prevent violence in terms of, you know, the level of violence, it's actually better to be facing a hegemonic movement. Because when you're facing a fragmented movement, you're likely to see these types of outbidding spirals emerge in more and more violence. And in fact, the Second Intifada, which both Wendy Perlman and Mia Bloom and others write about really well, um, shows that that's what happens. A lot of the suicide bombings that happen in the Second Intifada are not necessarily so much about going after the Israelis. They're a lot about internal groups competing for power, and that's actually leading to more violence against the Israelis than if it had been a hegemonic movement. In your other case, you also look at a, a violent struggle for independence, and that's the uh, struggle of the um, Algerians from basically the end of the Second World War until the early 1960s, when they uh, eventually won independence from France. How does your the theory fit in, in that case, and uh, which you know, was a successful outcome sure, for it the national movement in that it did achieve independence. Absolutely. So, yeah, I mean, a lot of the basic things that I talked about with the Palestinians happen with the Algerians as well. You see certain periods of unity in which there isn't success. You see certain periods of fragmentation when there isn't success. Um, when the Algerians gain a state, it's when the FLN, uh, the National Liberation Front, becomes the dominant group in the movement uh, and is able to both kind of signal to the French that, you know, these are our demands and we're not going to uh, divert from them. But secondly, uh, Charles de Gaulle, who's the leader of, the, of France at the time, is looking everywhere that he can for kind of a viable interlocutor, some other group with which we can cut a deal short of independence uh, to kind of get out of this war, but nonetheless maintain Algeria at least as a part of France or give something to the colons, the settlers who were there, and yet he cannot find any type of significant group except for the FLN. They have maintained the only address for a deal that will end the civil conflict because they are the hegemon. And because of that, that's one of the main reasons that the movement is ultimately able to have a total success. If you had had the MNA or some of these other Algerian groups that are around previously, still being viable and significant at the time, number one, you wouldn't have necessarily had clear signals about what the demands were for the movement, but number two, when the time came to cut a deal, yes, there might have been some degree of success because the war had gone you know, somewhat in their favor, or at least had worn down the French, but you ultimately might not have gotten independence in the same fashion because you didn't have that one-stop shop that was ultimately going to be able to make and deliver a deal. And how did the uh, FLN become the dominant movement, dominant group, within the Algerian national movement. So that's actually an interesting story, and it's it's one of the things that I talk about for future research, because the way that they did it is they often eliminated physically their rivals. So um, in this case, the MNA um, and the communists... Um, winning through assassination? It, to some degree. It's assassination. It's it's sometimes direct battles between, you know, guerrilla organizations. So it's not just killing one leader. It's, you know, sometimes killing hundreds of individuals, both in France and Algeria, um, to try to weaken your rival. Some of it, though, was also they were very smart about the fact that Look, in my, in my theory, I talk about organizations as being unitary, even though I break up the movement and say, look, the movement has lots of moving parts. I say, look, for organizations, I'm going to treat them as autonomous units. Well, guess what? Obviously, that's just an assumption. There are individuals within these units. And the only thing that might be more important to an organization than surviving and maximizing power is an individual surviving and maximizing power. And one of the things that the FLN did is they appealed to leaders in the Algerian national movement like Farhad Abbas and said, look, we will give you a leadership position inside of the F 
FLN. Now, you'll have to give up your organization and give up its autonomy. It's not going to be an alliance here. You're going to merge and become part of our group, but you will get a nice posh position within that group and therefore give you more incentive to do so. So they were very smart on the one hand being able to do that and kind of merge certain groups into them. On the other hand, the groups that would not merge into them, like the MNA, who was led by Masali Hajj, they basically physically eliminated them from the battlefield and therefore became the hegemon. These two cases, um, the Palestinians and the Algerians, seem to support your theory uh, pretty well. I'm curious about how you chose them. And I'd like to also know whether other cases, um, ones that you don't treat at length in the article, mm -hmm. would also support the theory, because there have obviously been uh, literally dozens of examples of colonies that became independent after World War II, and in many cases, there was a protracted period in which a, a national movement, mm -hmm. whether you look at India, Kenya, uh, you know, Tunisia, throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa as well. Mm -hmm. And I just wondered uh, whether you'd looked at whether this was a, a general mm -hmm. tendency in all those movements. Great. Uh, so a couple of things. In terms of case selection, um, this is kind of an initial analysis of the theory. And so what I was looking for were a few things. First is I pick these cases because I see them as most likely cases for some of these competing arguments. In fact, a lot of the field of national movements of political violence and its effectiveness is built on the Palestinian case. And when you say a most likely case, you mean the other theory basically is fighting on its home turf. Yes, and exactly. And it should be right if uh, the other th the alternative theories about how fragmented uh, movements are successful. Uh, they should fit these cases. Exactly right. And that's not something that I say. That's what these people who have written this stuff have argued before. So I'm just kind of taking the arguments they've made on these same cases and saying, hey, I have a different argument that I think fits the evidence better. So that was an attractive part of it. Uh, another key part is that these cases have variation on all the variables of interest. They have variation on the outcome in terms of success and failure of the movement, both internally over time they went up and down, as well as compared to each other, Algerians quite successful, Palestinians unsuccessful, as well as variation over time um, in the district of power in the movement. So the hierarchy of these movements shift where groups change from the leading position to the hegemon, to the challenger, to the subordinate, and that allows me to analyze the extent to which my claims about groups using violence or restraining it, pursuing common goals or individual goals, uh, actually play out or are not supported by the evidence. Now, in terms of your uh, question about, you know, is this a broader story of just kind of colonial movements and anti-colonial movements and why they succeed and they were going to kind of succeed anyway? Um, again, I would say a few things. First is, in terms of explaining when and why uh, success happens. I don't think that kind of this kind of broader anti-colonial ideal explains that very well. Um, second thing I'll say is I do look at some other movements. In addition to the Zionists that I talked about, I look at the Irish national movement, uh, both in the earlier period with the establishment of the Irish Free State in the beginning part of the 20th century, as well as the period of the Troubles in Northern Ireland. And, you know, that's a case where you would still say, at least from the Irish perspective, but much of the international community's perspective, this is an anti-colonial movement, and yet still to this day, Northern Ireland is part of the UK, and so what can help us to explain why, even though the norm perhaps has changed in terms of, um, you know, colonialism, it still seems like there are certain groups and movements that have not been as successful. From the Palestinian perspective, some of them look at the Zionist movement or the Israeli uh, state as part of this broader colonial movement, and yet they've been unsuccessful. So again, I think you do see some successes and others that are not, but sometimes I think the way we frame this stuff makes it seem like, well, if it was successful, that was anti-colonial, and if it's not, it was not, whereas I still think we have some unsuccessful anti-colonial movements today, again, at least from the perspective of these movements themselves. We have been talking mainly about movements that are seeking to establish their own state, win independence um, from another state, and set up a state in particular territory. And 
we've had some of that occurring in international politics still recently. Uh, the Chechens tried to create an independent state uh, and were defeated by the Russians. South Sudan did break away from uh, the rest of Sudan. And East Timor set itself up as an independent state uh, from Indonesia. But most of the contemporary movements, um, at least the ones that are in the, the news, seem to be trying to overthrow a regime. They don't want a new state, they just want to control an existing one. And that's going on in Syria now. It happened in uh, Libya not too long ago, and well, the situation in Egypt still is very much in a state of uh, flux over who is going to uh, control that state. Does your theory apply in that sort of case as well as the case of a, a national movement seeking a state? Uh, I think that it does. Look, I think there are certainly some ch alterations on the margin. I think, again, as you point out, in this case, not all of the groups involved are necessarily have this common goal. Uh, they might all want to capture the regime, but they don't necessarily benefit in the same way from having other members of their quote-unquote movement uh, capture that regime. But that being said, I think a lot of the mechanisms that I talk about do apply here, looking at Syria or elsewhere. So, first and foremost, the fact that you're going to have more counterproductive violence if you have fragmentation. I think, you know, unfortunately for the Syrian Syrian people, uh, Syria is an example of that, where you see the Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, you see Jabhat al-Nusra, you see the, you know, the various uh, army defection groups, you see some of the other Islamist, uh, Muslim Brotherhood affiliated groups, warring not just with the Syrian state, but now with each other on a daily basis, and that can be counterproductive for the insurgency. I think you also see a lack of clear signaling and credibility. Let's say the Assad regime does want to cut a deal. Um, who exactly do they talk to, and how do they know that that deal being signed is actually going to be followed by the broader insurgency? That's tough to do when you have fragmentation with in the movement and you don't have a clear hegemon. So I do actually think a lot of the various arguments do apply here. Um, one of the things that looking at these, you know, kind of more recent insurgencies have opened my eyes to is the fact that perhaps when you look at a movement, it's not just, again, kind of this unitary whole geographically, but there are different regions. And in different regions, you could have a hegemon here, but it's actually more fragmented there. And so the argument might kind of need a regional component in the sense of looking at Syria today, certain parts of Syria are being controlled very strongly by the regime, others by certain groups. And so perhaps the theory would operate uh, within those regions in different ways. Uh, I think about Paul Stanley's great work on wartime orders, uh, talking about how the state doesn't always have kind of uh, common monopoly of violence in all places and what impact that has on the use of violence and the pursuit of these common objectives. So um, I'm trying to think about what contemporary policy implications your theoretical argument might have. And... Uh, Maybe one way to get at that question is to ask, if you were advising the uh, Palestinians or just the PLO mm -hmm. on what to do today based on your understanding of what makes a movement effective or ineffective, what would you tell them? Yeah, so I would say, look, um, again, I say very humbly, of course, because I'm not neither a member of the movement, nor do I have the experience that the people do within it. But, um, you know, as an outsider who studied it, at least for a period of years, I would say, you know, again, the times in which your movement has been the most successful, you have had kind of a strong leading group. So what you need to be able to do, uh, first and foremost, is not necessarily think of this as an altruistic thing. I, th I think a lot of the time, unfortunately, um, there is altruism in national movements, but when you rely simply on groups kind of doing it for the common cause, but not for themselves or their own group, um, it sounds nice, but it doesn't 
often work. So instead, they need to come up with some type of organization. Again, the PLO could perhaps be the, the figurehead. In fact, even groups like Hamas and some of the critics of Fatah have said the PLO can kind of be this again. Um, some organization where it is a common front, it is uh, autonomous with a single leadership, but you're able to bring in people from various parts of ideology within the movement, various geographical parts of the movement, refugees, those living in the West Bank and Gaza, into this single organization. That way you're able to both pr create a common front and present a common front to the world as well as the Israelis and coordinate action in a way that right now is just not happening. Today you have Fatah and the PA negotiating with uh, Secretary Kerry and the Israelis. You have Hamas and some of the groups in Gaza uh, both launching and sometimes restraining rocket fire into Israel. You have other groups pushing for civil resistance in the West Bank that don't want to be part of either the PA nor uh, Hamas. And so in many ways, each of these individually could potentially be successful, but collectively they actually create more of a jumble and uh, ineffectiveness than otherwise would be the case. To take another uh, area in which uh, the implications might be applicable, what um, should the United States do to apply the lessons of your research? Sure. So looking at places like Afghanistan, for example, um, I think one of the things that comes out of it is that just as with armed movements and national movements, I say, look, there's kind of the tactical, organizational, and strategic levels. Same case in terms of talking about, say, counterinsurgency or countering a national movement. In this case, if you're trying to prevent kind of the achievement of a new state or the regime change, that's kind of a strategic level goal. Whereas if you're trying to prevent, say, attacks themselves, the tactical level, or you're trying to destroy a certain group, those are organizational level goals goals. And the types of policies you'd follow for different levels of goals are not exactly the same. One of the problems I think the United States has had in the broader struggle with al-Qaeda in Afghanistan is that those goals have often been not very clear or they've been conflated and it's been taught, it's been run like, you know, the same policy is going to achieve all three, whereas in fact that's not the case. As I said from the article, if you are trying to tamp down on violence, you actually would like to fight a hegemonic movement. If you are trying to destroy a given group and weaken that group organizationally, you can do that, but that might make it more likely it's going to be a fragmented movement in which you'll see more violence. If you actually want to prevent a movement from achieving its strategic goal of regime change, then you do want to fight a fragmented movement, but you have to recognize that you might face higher levels of violence, whether it's insurgent violence, terrorist violence, etc. So the first thing I would say to policymakers is simply be clear about what your objectives are and then recognize that the policy implications and the policy recommendations for my argument are going to be different depending on which of those goals you prioritize. That's a very uh, interesting point. Um, what's next for you on your research agenda building uh, on this work and mm -hmm. looking at the uh, effectiveness of uh, national movements and armed groups. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there's uh, you know three main things I'm working on that uh, to some extent come out of this project. The first is uh, I want to analyze the extent to which my theory and argument apply to other cases. Uh, so in the sense that, look, obviously it's valuable to look for within case variation in the Palestinian and Algerian national movements, but certainly there are many other national movements, let alone insurgencies, uh, that I want to analyze uh, my theory on. So I'm creating actually a data set uh, that looks at you know, distribution of power amongst groups and successes and failures of movements over time. Uh, it is a bit time-consuming in the sense that to get information on each faction, its relative power each year uh, takes quite a bit of time. It's not something that existing data sets have, but ultimately it is something I'm confident I'll be able to do and therefore analyze kind of the external validity of my theory uh, on more than just a few cases. Um, in addition to that, I'm looking at different types of movements. Um, both myself and other people who have heard me present this project have said, hey, you know, seems like your argument might apply to this nonviolent 
violent movement or this kind of you know civil resistance movement here, not just about violence. And I do think a lot, a large part of my argument does apply uh, to non-national movements or non-violent movements. But I haven't you know per se done that direct analysis. Certainly in the Palestinian national movement and in the Algerian national movement, they both went through periods in which the main tactics used were non-violent. Uh, but overall, I haven't looked at movements, uh, social movements or otherwise that just use non-violence and never opt for violence. So I'm also examining my theory about distribution of power, infighting, outbidding, signaling. It seems to me like some of those concepts would definitely still make sense within non-violent movements or non-national movements, so I'm analyzing that as well. Finally, I'm looking at new approaches to coercion. Uh, a lot of our theories of coercion kind of come from the Cold War and nuclear weapons and you know mutually assured destruction, these types of concepts, whereas obviously coercion in terms of you know threatening force to try to get the other side, be it a regime or a state, to kind of give you something, is something that happens all the time, whether you're using refugees, uh, whether you're talking about non-state violence and non-state coercion, whether you're talking about diplomatic sanctions, all of these types of things um, are relevant in terms of coercion, but the theories that we have for them are not necessarily that developed. So I'm actually co-editing a volume with Kelly Greenhill um, looking at new approaches to coercion, looking at new actors, new tools, uh, new ways to understand this stuff, and seeing to what extent we can use the lessons from kind of Cold War studies of coercion to help us explain the world that we face today, which again has different types of actors uh, and systems of coercion than we've been used to previously. We're just about out of time now, but I'd like to thank you uh, again for being with us today, Peter. Peter Krauss is Assistant Professor of Political Science at Boston College, and his article, The Structure of Success, How the Internal Distribution of Power Drives Armed Group Behavior and National Movement Effectiveness, appears in the winter 2013-2014 issue of International Security. Thank you again for being with us, Peter. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which is brought to you by International Security. For more information about the journal or to subscribe at a special listeners-only 20% discount, visit mitpressjournals.org slash is and enter the discount code ICEP22, that's I-S-E-P-22, at checkout.